titled this talk today, Restoration and Return in Ezekiel, and we're going to be focusing on a little known, newly, fairly newly translated manuscript from the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran. And I dug around in my library and found some old newspapers going back to 1948 to tell about the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, some of this might be a good background for everyone. It says here, in the English Churchman, October 8, 1948, under the heading 2,000-year-old manuscript of Isaiah, early this year some Arabs unexpectedly discovered a number of earthenware jars in a cave near the Dead Sea. These jars were obviously very ancient. They were covered with linen, and the linen covered with a black wax in order to protect the contents from damage. When the jars were opened, they were found to contain ancient manuscripts. By the end of February this year, some of the manuscripts had reached the Syrian monastery of St. Mark in Jerusalem. Two members of the fraternity asked the experts in the American School of Oriental Research, which is still around, by the way, to examine four of them Two were of parchment and two of leather. On examination, one of these rolls was found to be the complete text of the book of Isaiah. Students will be aware that the oldest manuscript, manuscript of Isaiah in our possession is a copy made in the 9th century AD until this was found. Students will be glad to learn one fact of considerable importance. This newly discovered manuscript is complete, up to and including the 66 chapters. Readers will be aware of the many critical conjectures about the composition of Isaiah. This new discovery now puts us in possession of a manuscript complete to the last chapter, written in the second century before Christ, and completed by the scribe before the dates on which many of the critics asserted portions of it were written. So rather uh, interesting uh, proof uh, of the Bible. And several years ago, uh, when I was at the British Museum in London, uh, in the shop there, I bought uh, a smaller uh, reconstruction of the actual stone case that the uh, book of Isaiah was found in, in the among Dead Sea Scrolls. And the scroll was rolled up inside like this. And this is a reproduction of the actual sheepskin text. And the pages go like this all all uh, page by page, all in a roll. It's kind of interesting. And wrote on the back. So this is was uh, an actual book of Isaiah that they had found, and this shows the the type of of, uh, of stone container that the uh, stored these these texts in. Another old newspaper from, uh, this was from January 15, 1949, mm. from the English Churchman. It says, it is still too early to be able to present a detailed analysis of the new Isaiah manuscript for careful examination, translation, and comparison with other texts that will take many months of painstaking work. But even so, it is known that the recently discovered scroll is one of the most valuable political finds in history. Those who have read earlier reports will be aware that the new manuscript is a complete copy of the book of Isaiah up to and including the 66th chapter and that it has been assigned a date about the first or second century BC. Further details of the new discovery have been given by Mr. Shepstone in the Methodist Recorder of November 9, 1948, in which the accompanying photographs also appears. Mr. Shepstone tells us the new manuscript was found quite accidentally in February of last year during the height of Arab-Jewish disturbances. Well, it just seemed like they ever ended. I'm still have disturbances. 
wandering Bedouins carrying goods from the Jordan Valley to Bethlehem chanced to explore a partially collapsed cave high up in the cliffs near the northern end of the Dead Sea. The collapse apparently both disclosed and broke a number of jars which were found to have scrolls protruding from them. The Arabs pulled out the scrolls, removed some cloth wrappings which had covered them, and thus revealed their ancient written characters. The discoverers then took the finds to the Maslow Sheik in Bethlehem and hoped that he would buy them. He, in turn, thinking the writing was Estrangelo-Syrian, referred the matter to the Syrian Christians, and so the manuscripts came into the library of St. Mark's Syrian Orthodox Convent in Jerusalem. From the convent, Father Sauni, one of the priests, you know, a picture of him here, telephoned Dr. J.C. Trevor, who was in charge of the American School of Oriental Research in Jerusalem, and asked if the school could help in identifying the scrolls. At that time, the situation in Jerusalem was very bad. <laughs> Is it ever good? And special passes were required for movement in the old city. Nevertheless, Father Sauni took the scrolls to Dr. Trevor the following day. There were four rolls in all, and Dr. Trevor at once realized that they were very old, they might be of great value, they were extremely brittle, and great care was necessary in handling them. Comparison with photographs of texts of other ancient manuscripts showed a similarity to the writing of the Nash Papyrus, now in the Manchester Library, which is dated about 100 BC. One of the manuscripts proved to be the complete text of Isaiah, a second to be Habakkuk, a third is a sectarian document, and there are others of which details will in due course be known. As Dr. Shepstone says, Dr. Trevor was thrilled to find the passages he had copied were word for word from the book of Isaiah. Shortage of materials and electric light cut hampered the making of photographic records of the scrolls, but after running many risks, Dr. Trevor was able to complete his work. The scrolls have now been removed from Palestine for safety, study, and translation. Needless to say, the new manuscripts are of inestimable value, and the implications of their discovery are enormous. To the modernists and higher critics, they will be most damaging. And figuratively speaking, the arrival of the new scrolls may serve to be something like that of an atomic bomb in the camps of those schools. For if the book of Isaiah, as we know it, was already fully compiled and in general circulation during the second century BC, there's little room for many theories concerning its late composite authorship. So these are uh, what the English churchmen from back in 1949 had to say about the uh, finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if you want to take a look afterward of the reproduction of the actual vase that the uh, book of Isaiah and the Dead Sea Scroll was actually uh, found in. And, uh, and a reproduction of the sheepskin scroll of Isaiah that was in the uh, in the container there. In addition to Isaiah and Habakkuk, there were also quite a number of other scrolls and one of them was only translated in the year 2001. And it's known uh, as either uh, Second Ezekiel or Pseudo Ezekiel. And it's a fragmentary Hebrew text found in Cave 4 at Qumran, belongs to the cache of manuscripts properly known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, is also classified as parabiblical and considered in some accounts as apocalyptic as well. Not, a, not known even in the scholarly world until the late 1980s and not published until 2001. Pseudo Ezekiel has emerged as one of the most controversial texts among the Qumran finds in the early years of the 21st century. And uh, on Wikipedia it says, the text is described as being in poor condition but all told, the fragments yield four to six columns of text. And it's a text of a, a continuation and reinterpretation of Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14, the Valley of Dry Bones, one of the most famous of Ezekiel's prophecies. 
the text appears to be a discussion between Ezekiel and Yahuwah, beginning with Yahuwah promising to Ezekiel that the dry bones will be raised and knitted together again to resurrect the kingdom of Israel. The author has taken the biblical account of Ezekiel 37 as his source, but whereas the resurrection of Israel in Ezekiel 37 is a metaphor for national restoration, pseudo-Ezekiel describes the resurrection of the righteous dead of Israel. Pseudo-Ezekiel therefore takes its place as one of only two texts found in Qumran which clearly refer to resurrection. And the other one is called the Messianic Apocalypse. And we'll reserve that for another time. Another interesting text, manuscript, in among the Dead Sea Scrolls. The only two texts in the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, that speak of resurrection. Now, I don't have an actual copy of this second Ezekiel because it was published in 2001, uh, and the translator and author was Devorah Damant, an Israeli archaeologist and scholar, and uh, copies of that I found on the internet were $400 to $800 a copy. <laughs> that was out of my price range. However, there was uh, an article on one of the biblical uh, sites written by her telling all about it, and so we'll get into that shortly. First, I wanted a, a backdrop to talk about the three passages in the Old Testament that deal with the resurrection of the soul, resurrection of the dead. The first, Isaiah 25, verses 7 and 8. The King James says, He will swallow up death in victory, and Yahuwah Elohim will wipe away tears from off faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for Yahuwah has spoken it. The literal version, concordant literal version, says he swallows up death permanently. Now that's very well stated, very bluntly stated. Way back in 1394, one of the earliest English translations was John Wycliffe's English version. And he says, And he shall cast down death without end, and the Lord God shall do away each tear from each face, and he shall away the shenshipi <laughs> of his people from each land. And uh, I had never heard of that word in English, shenshipi. <laughs> I did a search on the internet, and the closest thing I could find was a German word, schneeskipi, which means snow shovel. <laughs> so I'm sure that's not what <laughs> Wycliffe was trying to tell us in that verse. <laughs> you may have had plenty of use for a schnetzkepi this week, <laughs> but Wycliffe didn't have any use for it. Uh, the King James translates that as reproach instead of schnetzkepi. Uh, the Amplified Bible says, he shall swallow up death in victory. He will abolish death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from off all the earth, for Yahuwah has spoken it. And you may recall that these famous words appear several times in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, and also 1 Corinthians 15, 54, and 2 Timothy 1, verse 10 all relate to this famous verse in Isaiah 25, verse 8. The uh, Kyle and Delish commentary says about this passage, although the feast is on earth, it is on an earth which has been transformed into heaven. For the party wall between God and the world has fallen down, death is no more, and all tears are forever wiped away. And they say the, the veil and covering is from the Hebrew masakah, which in turn comes from sakak, meaning to weave, twist, or twist over. In other words, to cover. And they are not symbols of mourning and affliction, but of spiritual blindness, like the veil upon the heart of Israel, which Paul mentions in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 3.15. And this uh, massacre, or covering, 
is the upper side of a veil, a side turned towards you by which Yahuwah takes hold of the veil to lift it up. So says the concordance. Swallowing up is used elsewhere as the equivalent to making a thing disappear. Elohim will abolish death, so there shall be no trace of it left of its former sway. And the Apostle Paul gives a free rendering of this passage in 1 Corinthians 15:54. In the New Testament, we read about resurrection in Revelation 21, verse 4. And he will be brushing away every tear from their eyes, and death shall, will be no more, nor mourning, nor clamor, nor misery. They will be no more, for the former things are passed away. We read more about resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning of verse 26. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is except, accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that Elohim may be all in all. Starting then in verse 51 of 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this, when this corruptible shall put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And there is a reference again to the book of Isaiah. 2 Timothy 1.10 But now is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Yeshua, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Another passage in the Old Testament on resurrection is the next chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 26, verse 19. The Amplified Version says, The dead men, thy dead men, shall live together with my dead body, shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust, for thy dew is as the dew of earth, and the earth shall be casting out the dead. And Leo Moderna, in his book, History of the Rights of the Jews, page 238, had some interesting things to say about this. Uh, he was writing a century ago, speaking about the uh, Jewish customs in Europe, so I don't know if it's the same today. But he says, the Hebrews call a dead corpse nephesh, that is, a soul. Numbers 5.2 and 9.10 and 19.11 and Haggai 2.14. To note that it shall live again, and that the soul shall return to it. At this day also they call the churchyard Beth Cain, the house of the living. Now, I've never heard that, but you call it the graveyard, the house of the living. And as they return from the burial place, each one plucks off grass from the ground twice or thrice, and casts it over his head, saying, Psalms, reciting Psalms 92, verses 12 and 13, so to set forth their hopes of a resurrection. And those passages say, The righteous shall flourish like the palm tree, he shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that be planted in the house of Yahuwah shall flourish in the courts of our Elohim. And one of the rabbis, he says, reads it as, My dead body, they shall arise. And the resurrection is called, in the Syriacs, a consolation. We read in the New Testament about uh, resurrection, John 11, beginning in verse 21. Then said Martha unto Yeshua, Master, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of Elohim, he will give it thee. Yeshua saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Yeshua said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, 
Master, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of Elohim, which should come into the world. Now, the Kyle and Delish commentary on Isaiah 26, 19 says, the prophets, prophet thus speaks out of the heart of the church of the last times. When compared with the New Testament apocalypse, it is the first resurrection which is here predicted by Isaiah. So that would be the resurrection of the righteous rather than the general resurrection. The resurrection of just the righteous dead. The confessors of Yahuwah are awakened in one glorious church with those who are still in the body. In the case of Ezekiel also, Ezekiel 37, 1-14, the resurrection of the dead which he beholds is something more than a figurative representative of the people that were buried in captivity. The church of the period of glory on this side is a church of those who have been miraculously saved and waked up from the dead. And then finally the third and last passage of the Old Testament which deals directly with resurrection is Daniel 12, beginning at verse 1. And at that time of the end, Michael shall arise, the great angelic prince who defends and has charge of your, speaking of Daniel's, people. And there shall be a time of trouble, straightness, and distress, such as never was since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book of El's plan for his own. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt and abhorrence. And that's quoted in John 5.29, by the way. Daniel 12, 3, and the teachers and those who are wise shall shine, shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness, to uprightness and right standing with Elohim, shall give forth light like the stars forever and ever. And that's quoted in Matthew 13, 43. So a lot of the Old Testament is quoted in, in the New. So that brings us then to the Valley of Dry Bones prophecy and uh, we'll go through verses 1 through 14, take a look at that, and then take a look at second Ezekiel, or pseudo-Ezekiel, and what it adds to this passage. In the Valley of Dry Bones, it's divided into two sections. Verses 1 to 10 is the vision, and 11 to 14 is the interpretation. Beginning at verse 1, it says, and I'm going to be reading from the contemporary English version. Sometime later, I felt Yahuwah's power take control of me, and his spirit carried me into a valley full of bones. Yahuwah showed me all around, and everywhere I looked, I saw bones that were dried out. Now, Kyle and Gellish commentary says, Ezekiel is taken from his own home in a state of spiritual ecstasy into a valley which was full of dead men's bones. They were lying upon the surface of the valley, therefore not under, but upon the ground, and not piled up in a heap, but scattered all over the valley, symbolizing Israel's scattering throughout the earth. Verse 3, he said, Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones come back to life? I replied, Yahuwah Elohim, only you can answer that. <laughs> in other words, only you know the answer. Verse 4, he then told me to say, dry bones, listen to what Yahuwah is saying to you. I, Yahuwah Elohim, will put breath in you, and once again you will live. I will wrap you with muscles and skin and breathe life into you. Then you will know that I am Yahuwah. I did what Yahuwah said, but before I finished speaking, I heard a rattling noise. The bones were coming together. Now some people think that this rattling noise is equated to the trumpet blast that wakes the dead from their graves at the resurrection in the New Testament, or the earthquake that opens the graves. However, the Hebrew word for this noise, call, does not signify either a trumpet or an earthquake. Instead, verses 5 through 7 parallel the creation of Adam in Genesis chapter 2. The early theologian Theodore stated, For as the body of our forefather Adam was first molded, and then the soul was thus breathed into it, so here also both combined in fitting harmony in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37 verse 8 says, I saw muscles and skin cover the bones, but they had no life in them. Verse 9, Yahuwah said, Ezekiel, now say to the wind, 
Yahuwah Elohim commands you to blow from every direction and to breathe life into these dead bodies so they can live again. From every direction, and again, symbolizing that Israel had been scattered north, south, east, and west throughout the world. The King James said, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. And uh, Kyle and Delsh commentary says, The word slain is a translation of the Hebrew harak, Strong's Hebrew number 2026, a word which does not signify the dead of all kinds, but refers to those who have been slain or have perished by the sword, by famine, or other violent deaths, and which indisputably proves that Ezekiel was not shown the resurrection of all the dead, but simply the raising to life of Israel, which had been swept away by a violent death. It is apparent at once from this that our vision is not intended to symbolize the resurrection of all the dead, but simply the raising up of the nation of Israel, which has been slain. The dead bones are the whole house of Israel that has been given up to death, in other words, Judah and Ephraim. And this can be related to New Covenant Israel, uh, or righteous Israel. Ezekiel 37.10 says, As soon as I said this, the wind blew among the bodies and they came back to life. They all stood up. So we can see here that it's not speaking of being literally dead, because the dead do not stand up and say, I am dead. <laughs> Verse 10 continues and says, there were enough to make a large army. In other words, a great multitude, many nations, which ties in with prophecies that Israel would become a great multitude and be found in many nations. Genesis 17, four through six, Genesis 35, 11, and Genesis 48, 19. Ezekiel 37, 11 says, Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Kyle Delish says, The bringing of the dead bones to life shown to him in the vision was intended to place visibly before him the raising of the whole nation of Israel to new life out of the death into which it had fallen. This is obvious enough from the words, These bones are the whole house of Israel. Ezekiel 37.11 says, Yahuwah said, Ezekiel, the people of Israel are like dead bones. They complain that they are dried up and they have no hope for the future. So in other words, they weren't physically dead, but they were without hope, without spiritual faith in Yah during their exile. The Septuagint, the Greek Septuagint says, our bones are become dry, our hope is perished, we are quite spent. And so national power and might of Israel was weakened by the conquest of Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. Miles Coverdale, 1535, the Bishop's Bible, 1568, and Geneva Bible, 1587, all say, our bones are dried up, our hope is gone, we are clean cut off. And the Jewish Publication Society is very similar. Our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are clean cut off. In other words, completely cut off from the Palestine homeland and lost to history. They became the lost tribes of Israel, Matthew 10, 5, and Matthew 15, 24. The concordant literal version says, perished as our hope, we have been cut off by ourselves. In other words, not killed off by their enemies, but removed and separated uh, from other nations. Ezekiel 37, 12, so tell them, I, Yahuwah Elohim, promised to open your graves and set you free. I will bring you back to Israel. So in other words, they didn't all return after the fall of Babylon. There's a prophecy of them returning. Verse 13, and when that happens, you will realize that I am Yahuwah, a believing Christian nation they would be at the time of their returns. Uh, and uh, if you have questions about that, I have copies of last week's uh, notes to last week's talk on that subject. Verse 14, my spirit will give you breath and you will live again. I will bring you home, and you will know that I have kept my promise. I, Yahuwah, have spoken. And uh, Kyle Delish says, Placing them in their land before they are brought to life by the Spirit of Elohim would be at variance with the text, according to which the giving of the Spirit precedes the removal to their own land, which flies in the face of 1948 <coughs> in Palestine. The future resurrection 
both those deceased and those still living <coughs> is interpreted into the text, however, by Bible expositors. Kyle Delish says, Jerome, an early Christian expositor, who supported the view that Ezekiel 37 is the general resurrection that's spoken of, sought to remove the difficulties to which this explanation is exposed by taking the words, these bones are the whole house of Israel, as referring to the resurrection of the saints and connecting them with the first resurrection in Revelation 20 and verse 5. But the commentary says, the fathers and most of the Orthodox commentators, both of ancient and modern times, have found in Ezekiel 37 a locus classicus, in other words, a classic illustration or a prime example for the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. And that quite correctly, yet the supporters of this view acknowledge that Ezekiel 37 predicts the raising to life of the nation of Israel. So it's important to note that the bones Ezekiel saw lying around were not the bones of all those slain upon the earth, uh, but related to the house of Israel. And it's important to see that this passage is talking about both a literal, physical return to Palestine and allegorically of a resurrection from the dead. So now let's talk about pseudo-Ezekiel. Originally, uh, Ezekiel 37 was uh, an allegorical vision about the future return of Judeans to their land, but it became one of the cornerstones for Jewish belief in the resurrection of the dead. And you see this in the Qumran scroll of second Ezekiel, or pseudo-Ezekiel. Critical scholars generally understand these verses to mean the vision is a dramatic image expressing that the exiled Judeans who feel that all hope is lost will actually be revived as a people and return to their land. It is a prophecy about national restoration rather than individual resurrection. But several, some earlier Rabbinic interpreters understood it as about individual resurrection. For example, a Baraita, or Tanaitic source, in the Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 92b, records a debate about the vision's meaning. Rabbi Eliezer says, the dead whom Ezekiel resurrected stood on their legs, sang a song, and died. And I'm wondering what would be the point of that. He uh, resurrected them, they stood on their feet, sang a song, and died, went back to being dead. Uh, but that's, that's what the Talmud says. Rabbi Judah says, in truth, it's a parable. Rabbi Eliezer, the son of Rabbi Yossi, the Galilean, says, the dead whom Ezekiel resurrected moved to Israel, got married, and had sons and daughters. Mm. So that's some of the views in the Talmud. And this brings up the subject of Pharisees versus Sadducees. Um, Fabius Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, writes that the Pharisees accepted resurrection while the Sadducees rejected it. Josephus Antiquities, chapter 18. Josephus says, now for the Pharisees, they also believe that souls have an immoral rigor in them and that under the earth there will be rewards or punishments according to according as they have lived virtuously or viciously in this life. And the latter are to be detained in an everlasting prison, but that the former shall have power to revive and live again. But the doctrine of Sadducees is this, that souls die with the bodies. And we remember hearing about this in the New Testament in the book of Acts, talks about how Paul defended himself against charges of heresy when he was preaching in a synagogue about the resurrection of Yeshua. In Acts 23, verses 6 through 9, it says, When Paul noticed that some were Sadducees and others were Pharisees, he called out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisee. I am on trial concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dissension began between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there's no resurrection or angel or spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge all three. Then a great clamor arose, and certain scribes of the Pharisees' group stood up and contended, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? 
And uh, you can find other references in the New Testament to this battle over resurrection between the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew 22, 23, Mark 12, 18, Luke 20, 27, and Acts 24, 15. Rabbinic Judaism adopted the principle of resurrection in a future life as a key element of Jewish faith. It even threatens people who do not believe in the resurrection, ostensibly a reference to the Sadducees, with no future life. Sanhedrin 10 verse 1 says, all of Israel has a share in the world to come, and these are the ones who have no share in the world to come. Anyone who says there is no resurrection according to the Torah. The rabbis are so adamant this is a biblical concept that they create a host of midrashim to prove that resurrection is hinted at in the Bible. For example, in the Kulta, the rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, 15.1, says, Rabbi said, then Moses will sing. It doesn't say, then Moses sang. We learn from this that there is a resurrection according to the Torah. So you see kind of logic that the rabbis use. Because it's the future tense, therefore it's speaking about resurrection, which is kind of an awful long stretch there. Midrash Tanaim in Deuteronomy 33.29 says, let Reuben live and not die. But did he not already die? Rather, he should not die in the world to come. This proves that there is resurrection of the dead according to Torah. But that verse in Genesis, or in Deuteronomy 33.29, is speaking about Reuben the tribe. It's not talking about Reuben the man. So that really doesn't prove their argument at all. The rabbis even instituted a blessing about the resurrection of the dead, said to be part of three times a day Amida prayer. Blessed are you, O Lord, who resurrects the dead. You're supposed to recite that three times a day. Blessed are you, O Yahuwah, who resurrects the dead. Um, the rabbis' view is in keeping with that of the Pharisees, who many scholars believe were the rabbis' spiritual predecessors. So you can see that the Jews today believe in resurrection from the dead, but the arguments that they use from the scriptures here are, don't hold water. They're, they're, they're reading things into the text that isn't there. Without the New Testament and the proofs in the New Testament of Yeshua's death and resurrection, they have a very difficult time trying to prove that there is a future resurrection without twisting the scriptures or reading into it. So it's rather, rather interesting that the, the uh, problem that the Jewish scholars have trying to uphold the doctrine of the resurrection. Did the Essenes believe in the resurrection of the dead? According to Flavius Josephus, they did. Josephus says they teach the immortality of the souls in Picaries chapter 18, verse 18. But scholars have not yet been able to find any manuscript from the Essenes that upholds a belief in future resurrection of the dead. But according to Josephus, they did hold to resurrection. So two non-biblical Hebrew texts, Messianic Apocalypse, which we're not getting into today, and Pseudo-Ezekiel, found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, do speak explicitly of resurrection of the dead. Their presence in the Qumran Library, together with six copies of the Book of Daniel, shows that they were aware of the belief of resurrection, because we, as we read Daniel 12 and verse 1 through 3, speaks about future resurrection at the end of, eight, of the age. The Messianic Apocalypse, also found in the fourth Qumran cave, is also a fragmentary text dated to the first century BC, and lists the works and wonders that will take place in Messianic times. Kind of an interesting uh, document that we'll deal with some other time. And in contrast to Daniel, which distinguished between the righteous and the wicked, the resurrection in 2nd Ezekiel seems to be applied to the entire people of Israel, which is uh, implied in Ezekiel 37. But the New Testament Israel are the righteous believers who are the prophetic Israel of the New Covenant. 
So yes, the entire people of New Covenant Israel will be in the first resurrection of the just. But that doesn't mean every physical Israelite doesn't include those who rejected Yeshua. So second Ezekiel is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls in four fragmentary copies. Uh, previously unknown because they were in such poor condition, they weren't translated until 2001. And they reshaped our understanding of Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones. So in pseudo-Ezekiel, it speaks of the resurrection in three steps. First, the joining of the three bones. It reads, Son of man, prophesy over the bones and speak and let them be joined to the bone and joint to its joint. And it was so. Secondly, pseudo-Ezekiel talks about covering the bones with soft tissue. And he said a second time, prophesy and let arteries come upon them and let skin cover them from above. And it was so. And thirdly, it comes the breath of life. And he said, prophesy again over the four winds of heaven, let them blow beneath breath into the slain. And it was so, and a large crowd of people came to life and blessed the Lord Sabaoth who had given them life. And so uh, you can see it parallels uh, Ezekiel 37 and adds the concept of resurrection, uh, which isn't clearly spoken of in Ezekiel 37. There is a future reward then only for a righteous individual. Uh, instead of describing the fate of all of Israel, uh, it's applied only to those who are believers. And again, that would be New Covenant Israel, believers in all nations, no unbelievers. And only the righteous will see Yah's kingdom. The uh, pseudo-Ezekiel says there's a blessing concerning resurrection. It says that the revival is real, not symbolic, is made clear by the fact the resurrected crowd recites a blessing <coughs> after the revival. It says, and all the people rose up and stood on their feet to thank and to praise Yahuwah Sebaoth, and I too spoke with them. So specifically, it seems likely the author of Ezekiel may have been inspired by Isaiah 26, 19. Awake and shout for joy, you who dwell in the dust. Uh, understood as a description of people spontaneously praising Elohim upon being resurrected. And this demonstrates that at the time, uh, second century BC, people were understanding the verse in Isaiah as proof of resurrection. The Babylonian Talmud in Sanhedrin 91 and 92 contains a, a, a list of, of proofs. Remember, this is not scripture, but the Talmud gives proofs of resurrection. It says, our rabbis taught, I put to death and bring to life. Perhaps this means he puts some to death and others to life. The verse teaches and makes sick and I heal. Just like illness and healing is the same person, so too death and life is the same person. From here, there is a response to those who say there is no res resurrection according to the Torah. Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi said, How do we know there is a resurrection according to the Torah? For it says in Psalms 84, verse 5, Happy are the dwellers in your tent. They will praise you, Selah. It does not say they praised you, but they will praise you. From here is proof of resurrection according to the Torah. So again, you can see a real big stretch there to try and prove resurrection from... Uh, Old Testament verses uh, that they use. Targum Yonatan in the 2nd to 3rd century says, It is you who resurrect the dead, the bones of their corpses you raise. They will live and speak praises before you, all who are lying in dust. For your due is radiant due for those who keep your Torah. But to the wicked whom you have given might, but who violated your commands, you will hand over to Gehenna. In other words, to hell. They'll go to hell. It's their thing. So, in summary, the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14, and the apocryphal second Ezekiel, or pseudo-Ezekiel, have both a physical prophecy of Israel's literal return, as well as allegorical inferences of a future resurrection 
of the righteous dead at the dawn of the millennium and return of Messiah. And this is due to the most famous and important vision of the apostle Ezekiel, of the uh, prophet Ezekiel. So I'll close with that. If anyone wants to take a look at the at the reproduction of the vase that the Isaiah scroll was found in. Of course, it was a larger one. This is a re reduced size reproduction of the actual vase they found the Isaiah scroll in. And this is a reproduction of the actual sheepskin text of Isaiah. And uh, the entire book, 66 chapters, is found here in the Qumran uh, manuscript there of Isaiah. So are there any questions? Are there any questions? Okay. I'll answer all your questions, hopefully. What do you mean about the apocalypse? Oh, the apocalypse, that is the Greek word for revelation, the book of revelation. It's called the apocalypse in Greek. That was an excellent question. You can see uh, New Testament, most of the New Testament was believed to have been written in Greek. They believe that Matthew was originally written in Hebrew, and I have a copy of the Hebrew book of Matthew, uh, which, uh, may or may not be genuine, uh, but I do believe that was probably written in Hebrew and uh, most of the Testament probably in Greek uh, or, or, or some in Aramaic. Did you say that um, you thought the the scripture in Ezekiel was making a physical um, reference to Israel returning to Palestine? It's talking about an actual physical return. However, I didn't get into this, if you look at places such as, uh, I think it's Ezekiel 27, 12, uh, and, and other passages, it was to be a representative return it doesn't mean that every Israelite in the world would return. It says, I'll take you one by one and we'll bring you to Zion. And, uh, and there's another passage to try to think off the top of my head uh, that talks about how it would be a representative return. Let's see, let me look at Isaiah 27. So you don't, you don't have to feel like you have to pull up stakes and move to Palestine. Uh, Isaiah 27, 12. In that day, Yahuwah will thresh the flowing Euphrates to the wadi of Egypt, and you, O Israelites, will be gathered up one by one. And you see this also in uh, that very few would, would return. Uh, Jeremiah 3 and verse 14 is another one that says that it's only going to be uh, a limited return, symbolic return. Jeremiah 3.14 says, Return, faithless people, declares Yahuwah, for I am your husband. I will choose one of you from every town and two from every clan and bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. So there will only be one of every town and two of every clan that would be going. It would be a representative return, not a general return as some think. You see this also in... Uh, Jeremiah 42, verse 2. Jeremiah 42. 42, verse 2 says, Jeremiah the prophet said to him, Please hear our petition and pray to Yahuwah your Elohim for this entire remnant. For as you now see, though we were once many, now only a few are left. Uh, or it says, For there are only a few of us left out of many. 
so uh, it's speaking about a few number of people. Uh, Zechariah 10 and verse 6. strengthen the house of Judah and save the house of Joseph. I will restore them because I have compassion on them. They will be as though I had not rejected them. For I am Yehudah their Elohim. I will answer them. Uh, New American Standard says, I will bring them back. A representative return. So they be no longer Loami, not my people, but be married to Yeshua. So uh, it's saying that there would be a representative return by ones and twos one of the city, two of a family, two of a clan, and uh, not that everybody would go back. And the reason is, Israel was scattered out of Palestine by Yah for a reason. They went north, south, east, and west. I mean, the Abraham Covenant says that in Genesis 28, 14, that they would go north, south, east, and west. This ties in under the new covenant with the universal spread of the gospel. So in other words, uh, the way I see it is that under the Old Covenant, Yah took one relatively small group of people and one relatively small place, and in types and shadows, he showed what he would be doing under the New Covenant with the whole world. He's not interested in only saving a small group of people. He's interested in saving the whole, the whole world. And so you can yeah. see, you have to look at how Old Testament ties in with the New Testament. And Yah scattered Israel for a purpose. Uh, it, it wasn't just a punishment. He has a, a purpose what he's doing. Scattered them every direction, in other words, so it could bring the whole world ultimately in under the New Covenant. And that's the ties right in with the verses like Habakkuk 2.14, and Isaiah uh, 9, it says, uh, the knowledge of the glory of Yahuwah shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And you can see that idea of universality as the waters cover the sea, 100%. The knowledge of Yahuwah will cover the earth. And so, uh, so you can see there's a wonderful, wonderful plan and purpose that Yah has. And you see other symbolism too. What was death under the old covenant is life under the new. On the Old Testament Pentecost, you saw 3,000 died. On the New Testament Pentecost in Acts 2, 3,000 there were saved. You can just 